welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 33rd episode with me, Niklas Beer Lumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. Great. So, Richard, um, we agreed that we would talk about what we loosely have labeled the institutional option this time around, which is when uh, companies decide that they might want to cede power and influence to a third party or some kind of other body because they feel that that's the best way to to make these decisions about that that they're ceding to this third party and and we there are tons of examples of this in the tech industry one of the really early ones is an organization called the GNI tell us a little bit about them yes yeah, so, so this is the global network initiative and and it was actually set up in 2008 and it followed on from a, a series effectively of scandals that took place in the mid 2000s where tech companies were starting to operate in more challenging countries, countries like China, uh, and issues were arising in the sense that, you know, uh, companies were either removing content that people felt should be protected speech, or indeed, in some cases, providing data to governments that then use that data uh, to to do bad things to the people who've been operating online. Um, and, And so, in the middle of that, you actually have a lot of interest in the U.S. Congress. There's a lot of echoes of today, actually, that the U.S. Congress was really interested in, you know, what tech companies were doing in these more challenging markets and really said, look, there were hearings and it was very embarrassing companies like Cisco and Microsoft and others and uh, Yahoo at the time. Um, so that they were all sort of pulled in front of, of the U.S. Congress and they were told to fix it. <clears throat> and the way that they decided to fix it or part of the way they decided to fix it was to create a new institution, the Global Network Initiative, that would be a partnership between companies and people from civil society, academics, other human rights experts, to draw up a set of operating principles that the members, the tech company members of this initiative would then implement. And the GNI institution would have processes in place to audit those tech companies and make sure that they were uh, sticking to the principles. So the principles were intended both to be preventive, you know, if a tech company followed those, it hopefully would not uh, go wrong in terms of freedom of expression and privacy in in some of these more challenging companies, uh, but also have a way of picking things up if they had gone wrong and holding the companies to account. Not not legally, uh, because this was a self-regulatory initiative, but certainly in terms of, you know, being able to go out in the public with a report saying, look, we found that the companies were doing this. Yes. And, and since they also had academics on and NGOs on, etc., there were people who could expose an audit that fell short of the expectations of the organization as such. But but let's get back to this decision to, to sort of cede power to a third party, because uh, I was there at the time, you were there at the time, and I remember very clearly uh, uh, the debates and discussions that we had internally. And I thought it was really interesting because there is a pattern to these discussions that I think is recurring again and again and again. And and the pattern, as I remember it, and it would be interesting to hear if you have similar recollections, was that you know we do believe this is a problem. We don't think that there's a competitive advantage here. We can't say that we're doing human rights better than this other company. But are we really willing to cede the autonomy and independence that we have today to a third party? And that question, you know, are we willing to bind ourselves here, uh, seems to be one that's recurring all the time. What, what advice did you give to folks internally mm. when they asked you, what, why should we bind ourselves? 
So, so interesting. Facebook didn't join until 2013, uh, and actually, after you know, sustaining quite a long period of um, pressure from members of the U.S. Congress who who had been champions of setting this thing up, they would sort of write almost on a weekly basis to Facebook, going, "Why aren't you members yet?" And and Facebook held out. And you know, I was party to those conversations at the time, but it was. I think that the hesitancy was was primarily about the unknown. You know, um, we knew what we were doing when we were making decisions at the company. Uh, introducing a third party, even uh, an apparently you know sophisticated third party that that was working with other companies, introducing any third party was seen as potentially risky. Uh, the risk being it would slow you down or get in the way or make you you know be over bureaucratic this whole idea of process and audits and things made people very very nervous and so they held off and then eventually an agreement was reached where um the the global network initiative allowed facebook to join as an observer and that, and that was where i think essentially people like myself who who wanted us to be part of of this were were able to negotiate something whereby uh facebook could try being a member uh uh, test whether or not it was going to lead to the company, you, you know, um, having to stop doing everything and start filling in forms. Uh, and after a period of time as an observer, people started to feel more comfortable. I think, frankly, as well, that the company started to realize that the the risks were increasing as it moved into more markets where, you know, there were going to be more human rights risks. Um, and so at that point, then Facebook decided to join. So I was, yes, squarely in a position between 2009 and 2013, essentially, where the Facebook sort of um, epitomized that hesitancy of a company that believes it controls its destiny entirely, sort of having or feeling that it needs to move to a position whereby it is now sharing decisions with a third party outside and is no longer entirely autonomous. And there is something here that we should tease out in the name of honesty. And that I saw that several times. And, and I think it's an interesting phenomenon. And that is that there were people who were really interested in and super focused on the quality of the decision making, sort of, are we making the right decision here, who felt that they were in essence, smarter than any other person could be outside because they had a bigger and deeper picture uh, than people who were outside. So there's there's a little bit of a, a sort of, they can't know this as well as we can. And there's a touch of arrogance there for sure, but also a touch of sort of wanting to, to really make the best possible decision. Between arrogance and, and the good ambition to make good decisions, there is a hesitancy to bind yourself and see decision power outside of the company. Is this something that you think is particular for tech companies because they have they have a sort of a, a culture of of hiring super smart people to solve really hard problems, and sometimes this spills over into those smart people thinking they can solve other problems better than everyone else. Yeah, I mean it's a really important observation because because I think it is. It's partly because tech companies are built on this notion of innovation, so by definition you believe you're doing something that nobody was able to do previously. You're the first to build this amazingly successful thing and everyone else was, you know, maybe others who tried it and failed, but you're the guys who have succeeded. Like you, you, that's how you feel and you feel like, uh, yeah, you are the smartest people in the room and that's a, a real risk. And it does mean, actually, as we talk about this whole debate about decision-making, you know, essentially the people who can make decisions about the content, for example, that's allowed to be circulated online are the people in the tech companies, governments, or civil society organizations like the Global Network Initiative and others. And uh, I think you're absolutely right that the people in the tech companies often feel 
that they are better than those other two options and that they're going to make better decisions uh, and having to explain themselves to let's you know use the language like dumb governments or you know or you know uh, ill-informed civil society organizations who don't really know what's happening or happening you know on the platforms that is we have to be candid a kind of common feeling over time i think that changes uh sometimes it changes because you know the people in 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 government and the people in civil society uh, gain more respect from the tech companies because actually they are very good a lot of them and they get familiar with them they oh you know they can reevaluate their their view of people outside and and realize they're not so you know there's not such a huge difference um sometimes it's, it's frankly because those people come into the companies so the companies hire people from governments and civil society and, and now the person inside the company is a peer of the people outside the company in the government and civil society worlds and that that changes the dynamic quite a lot and then sometimes again quite frankly it's because you're just in such a pickle <laughs> that you can't <laughs> hold the line even though you still believe you're the best people to make these decisions <laughs> You know, nobody else in the world believes that, <laughs> and you're yeah. being criticised on a daily basis. And so, the only way you know that you can get out of this is to start sharing that decision making with people outside. And I, I think that there's something fundamental in your focus on decision making that's really helpful when you want to untangle this debate. Because one of the other things that that I think sets uh, a tech company up for for misevaluating the institutional option is that a lot of the tech companies are driven from a deeply ingrained engineering culture where the nature of the question is is this true or false and true or false is sort of the how you if you ask a question about something you want to know if it's true or false the political communities that we're all a part of and companies as well they don't care so much about true or false as is this the right person making the decisions how do we live together? The political question is not, is it true or false? It's it's not even, is it legal or, or illegal? The political question is, how do we live together? And living together means that, that we want to make sure that there is a distribution of decision-making, to your point, that is uh, that, that provides transparency, that also, I think, distributes power, that, you know, might slow things down, because sometimes that might be a purpose in, in distributing decision-making. And, and so, so let's talk about this. You said that there were three parties that could make decisions. There was the company, there's government, and then there's essentially the third party or institution. How should we think about this in general terms? Who gets to make the decision? Well, I mean, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to recognize the biases that each party has. Uh, it's really important. And again, over the last couple of weeks, people have been you know, talking a lot about Facebook on the back of some some documents that were put in the public domain. And and the starting assumption is, look, Facebook only cares about profits. Tech companies only are only interested in making money. I do think it's a bit more nuanced. They're primarily interested in growth and engagement, which will tend to lead to money. But really, their their sort of DNA is all about maximizing the use of the products they built. They think their products are brilliant and they really want people to be using those products. And of course, if people use the products, they'll make money. But I think they're more focused to say on the on the growth and engagement that, than necessarily like going straight to the kind of money piece. But anyway, every time a tech company makes a decision, it is going to be biased because of their business interests, because they're trying to grow their business, they're trying to get more engagement. Like that's a built-in bias. They can try and fight it, but it's there. Um, when we look at politicians, 
again, they have their own biases, their biases in favor of getting reelected. And I've been there and there's a logic and the logic is, look, you can't do good for the world unless you've been reelected. And so you kind of feel you're justified in, in doing things, you know, to go after votes. And I, I like to think that most of the decisions I, I made then would, would have been in the public interest, but I'd be lying if I said, I never thought, oh, you know, <laughs> which of these options is going to be more popular with my electorate. So in a similar way to the companies going after growth and engagement, politicians have their own version of that. And the same, both cases, they're holding both of these things to be true. And then civil society, again, civil society tends to feel the purest. I mean, most people will say, look, you know, companies are only after money, politicians are only after votes, which I say, I don't think either of those is true, but I think there's an element of truth in it. Civil society feels purer. But again, when we look at it, there's all sorts of interests. If you're a a not-for-profit, you may well be looking for funding. And so the the campaigns you run and the actions you do may be be influenced by the fact that some campaigns are more likely to attract money for your organization. And again, your justification is, look, I'm still in the job and I have to be in my job and get the funding in order to do good for the world. Um, So you've got an internal justification for that. So I think... And and to your point, I think one thing that's important in that and important to pick up on is this notion that you think that you know what's good for the world. The ideological motivation should not be underplayed when it comes to civil society, which means that they have a view of whether or not corporations are good, whether or not certain kinds of behaviors are good. So there's an ideological component to that that is, is rarely discussed because this notion of neutral decision making is 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 largely fictional there's no such thing right so there's there and i think that's interesting and not because it's wrong but because it's and it's not always the case to your point but i think because when we think about um, third parties we shouldn't think that the third party implies neutrality third party implies another ideological perspective that's right yes yeah i think that's correct and in in the tech space i think we're probably both had experience there is a kind of mixture uh, I find uh, typically uh, of quite a bit of libertarian thinking uh, that's sort of still there in the tech space, particularly in the US, m- mixed with, I actually find a, a, quite a strong element of people who come from a left perspective in society. And so, again, you know, we've lived it over the last few years that the criticisms are, why don't you shut down these nasty populist right-wing politicians? That's what you'll get. And so people who are, who are coming at it from that approach and saying, we don't like your decision-making, a lot of the time they're asking you to to make decisions that are more aligned with their political perspective, which tends to say to be some ways it's an interesting mix of kind of libertarian and left at the same time quite often. Um, and so th- there we go. When we've got a decision uh, and we can get and talk about some concrete decisions, the question then is which of these um, uh, many actors with their own biases do you want to make that decision and and once we've surfaced them how do we almost sort of cancel them out i mean that, that would, we'll head in that direction but i think for me to get a really good decision all of these parties have a role to play all of them with their you know i, I think sort of very clear view that they're acting in the public interest but also being very aware that they all have other interests at heart as well um, and if we can bring them all together, I think we'll get somewhere to making good decisions, which again is sort of in the structure actually of the Global Network Initiative. Although in, in that case, it's industry and civil society and doesn't have the government element, but government was very strongly pressurizing industry and civil society to be part of it. And again, I think in that case, in particular, it reflects the US view of the world where you know government tends not to 
jump into these decision-making processes quite as much because there's a very, very uh, strong tradition, as expressed in the First Amendment, of government staying out of decisions, particularly around uh, speech and content on platforms. But that's that's interesting, and it's worth also uh, uh, unpicking because it, um, you referenced the First Amendment, and there is, of course, a for- fourth option that you can go for, and that's legislation and courts. So that's courts right. are also a decision-making mechanism. So if you if you look at this and we start to unpick the criteria for where the decision should be made, one of the first criteria, one of the most basic criteria, actually seems to be efficiency. Because a lot of actors, both in government companies and civil society, resist the notion that it should only be courts that decide, for example, what's left up or what's taken down. Um, so if we let's take the let's take a concrete decision whether or not we should allow climate change denial um, online. Uh, one answer to that question would be make it illegal. Then, if somebody Sorry. does, you know, post something that is climate change denial. Take it to court. The court looks at it. If they say it's illegal, post a court order. The court order goes to the company. The company takes it down. Now, that option, the legal option, is sort of uh, one of the primary options, but enormously rarely used. And the key, as far as I can see, the key reason for that is that that we actually price with the premium on efficiency in this process. So efficiency has to be one of our criteria as we decide where a decision should be made. Is that right? That is exactly right. So, so I mean, the court option, I think, um, tends to be popular in countries where the legal code is is sort of broadly aligned with where people are culturally. And isn't this a big gap? So the, the prime example, I think, would be Germany, where there's actually quite a restrictive uh, uh, speech code. There's quite a lot of uh, German laws that sort of uh, would restrict particular kinds of speech, not just hate speech, but... Um, uh, other forms of kind of threatening and, and harassing behavior that in other countries might, you know, not reach the threshold for legality, but in Germany, uh, they will do. And things like criminal defamation being sort of too rude about somebody can get you into all kinds of trouble. So, so you'll find it there. Then there are, then there are a set of countries where, um, you know, the law just holds off in this space. And so if you say we're going to follow court decisions, it means nothing comes down. And the US would be an example where actually very little child abuse imagery and not much more than that. And then there are countries where they have very well-developed legal systems, but people in other countries think that those legal systems go way too far or, or that the judges are way too biased. Um, and in fact, Global Network Initiative, part of the sort of rationale for it was to to try and encourage companies to hold back in those countries. And the, again, an example, not, not surprising, won't be somewhere like Russia, where if you work in a tech company, you'll get you know frequent letters from the prosecutor's office telling you that uh, opposition politician speech is illegal and must come down. So this sort of court option it, uh, um, is theoretically great if you're if you're a human rights uh, supporter it's kind of the notion that the decisions are being made by an accountable body a government and if the people don't like those decisions they can lobby their government to change the law uh, and that the system will work it works really well in that kind of theoretical model in, in practice it's very sort of variable uh, as to whether or not it's going to meet public expectations and then even then as you say that the volume issue becomes a, a question and actually those countries 
where they they perhaps have the fewest uh, human rights protections in place are the ones that can manage the volume. So the Turkish government, for example, I remember, had no trouble sending, you know, firing off hundreds of requests uh, from the regulator going, take this down, take that down. Uh, they had no trouble at all. You didn't get the same thing, actually, even in Germany, uh, where, where a lot of the speech is illegal and the, and the politicians were very upset with the companies. Even there, you weren't getting you know, masses and masses of court orders on speech, and partly because they have got a strong set of constitutional protections and a human rights framework and would worry that people would contest every single one of those orders and it would get bogged down and be there forever. So you've got, again, this sort of interesting trade-off where um, the countries that, that, as I say, perhaps have the fewest protections in place are the ones who are best equipped to issue takedown orders at, at scale and at volume, uh, but they're the ones that, you know, from a human rights perspective, you might be most nervous about. And in, in many other countries, a lot of noise, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, but their own legal protections mean essentially they have to defer to the companies to do this at scale because their court systems are just not going to be able to handle it with all of the different routes of appeal and challenges and the sort of heavy judicial processes that should be in place actually for you know speech-restricting cases. And I think this is interesting because it, it goes to the question of who should make the decision in the beginning, because one part of who should make the decision is the legitimacy of the decision on who makes the decision, right? And so if you if you go for court, there's there's pretty robust legitimacy there, right? You have democracy, you have democratically, if you go to a democracy at least, democratically elected parliamentarians who can debate whether or not something should be illegal online. And they can then make the decision to to make it illegal, and if you get a court order, um, even in, in less democratic countries, most companies say that the court order is sort of a line that they feel that they have to follow. And I think that's, to me at least, it, it seems that that there is a reticence to use that option. Um, it suggests that the efficiency thing is one thing, but the other thing is that that the, there's, there's like a belief that the court system couldn't ha- handle the volume which seems right. to be another sort of issue. How many of these complaints will there be? Yeah, so it's the volume and, the, and then the way that courts and companies work. So one of the other things you then get, and, and uh, we keep coming back to our, our friend, the German Network Enforcement Act. I mean, that's the most explicit attempt to say to companies, uh, essentially, oh, I think a little buzzing there from a, a mobile phone, I think. Yeah, I'll put that away. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, no problem, no problem. We'll have um, so, so with the Network Enforcement Act, the German politicians were, were saying very explicitly to the companies, we want you to enforce a German law, German speech standards, kind of as though you were a German court. Now, you know, in, in theory, that again, that sounds attractive. We just tell the companies to enforce our law. But in practice, that's that's extremely challenging because... What court cases will do often is, you know, someone will say, I don't like this content, it should be taken down, and they'll invite somebody to come and defend it, and there's a whole backwards and forwards. And I've seen over, you know, single, almost, use the word, trivial kind of piece of content, but where somebody's got upset about it, you know, court judgments will run to a dozen or 20 pages where they've argued backwards and forwards. And again, you know, that is the legal standard. The legal standard says you've got a right to defend it, a right to attack it. You've got to go through all these different arguments and precedents. And that, again, is not going to happen at scale inside the company. So even where a company says we are applying the legal standard, what does that mean? It means we're 
we're sort of looking at an approximation of what we understand to be the legal standard. We've asked our outside counsel to give us some guidance on what looks illegal and what looks legal, and we're trying to apply that. But we're not, you know, for each piece of content that we're deciding about having arguments for and against in a courtroom type environment and writing a 20 page judgment. Um, yeah. The people but, who do do that though, are the, uh, will come on the, the external oversight board, actually the Facebook one, that is actually the closest that you get. If you want to see what that process looks like, the external oversight board, I think gives you a good sense of what it would look like uh, if a company were doing it. And clearly they're not able to do it. Facebook's not able to do it for every decision they make every day. And I think there's another interesting example that that builds on exactly this, that there was a court case in which the court said the first instance for trying these requests has to be the company. Yeah. And and that court case was the right to be forgotten case. Um, in the right to be forgotten case, the, the court explicitly says that you can't just send all of these to the DPAs, assuming that they would be inundated with, with the requests, etc. But you have to make a first assessment yourselves. And, and that actually led Google to, at the time, to take the institution option to build an observatory that traveled around to listen in on what should the principles be for removing something under this right to be forgotten. And so it's it's interesting when when um, one way to address it that I thought was quite innovative at the time, at least, and it, it met a lot of criticism, but I, I thought it was interesting was, was to say, look, there is a request here from the court that we act as a first instance with delegated power. Let's go figure out what that is. And so you build up a, an observatory with a lot of independent third parties that then held hearings uh, around Europe to see what is the... What I, can we distill? What can we crystallize from this in terms of principles that will allow us to uh, to do this first test, sort of be this first instance that the court wants us to be? And I think it's sort of a nascent version of the oversight board trying to figure out what are the processes that we should adopt and what are the principles that we should be guided by. But that was a that was an example uh, also, I think, of the institutional option. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it also does something. I think the the, um, the Google right to be forgotten example, and, and actually I think the external oversight board to an extent do the same thing, is that they're a way of sort of sharing with the public how difficult something is. You know, it sounds, on the face of it, it sounds really simple. Right to be forgotten? Well, who, who can be against rights? We like rights. Um and but you want to have find some forum in which you can discuss those difficult cases, the kind of cases I know you hit, where you know somebody uh, has committed a serious crime, and, and maybe it was a little bit sort of, sort of more distant uh, from today, and that therefore technically under the right to be forgotten, it should be removed, and yet it's on the newspaper website, but not in the index. All of this sort of complexity, it's a way of getting that out there, and in, in the way that I think the external oversight board is is for some cases that Facebook had that people I think previously thought were obvious, you know, you should just, this should be simple. It's not. So I think bringing out the complexity of the decision-making is an interest that the companies have where they're in an area and they're frustrated, I guess. And again, I'm sure you experienced that. They're frustrated that, that um, they're being asked to do something very, very complicated. They're being criticized whichever way they go. They're either, We've used it before the Goldilocks and Three Bears thing. It's either too hot or too cold. It's never just right, the porridge uh, that they serve up. And so they want people to see how they're making the porridge and 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 how difficult it is in order to uh, hopefully have some more empathy 
an understanding of that of why these decisions are difficult, rather than just assuming the companies are either malicious or stupid, which is usually the start. Or both, which would be horrible, both, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. maliciously no, stupid. No, yeah. uh, we've been we'd have been adamant about not asking for sympathy, and I don't think we're asking for sympathy here either. These are hard decisions that should uh, should be frustrating mm-hmm. to make, I think, in many uh, instances. But but let's let's sort of back out a little bit. We, we have our first criterion; it's efficiency. We believe that that's a criterion that's actually broadly shared in most communities that you know we do believe that going through a court for every single thing that's happening would probably not be a viable option there are some who think it is but the vast majority probably think that we look at these three others that you looked that you talked about government and companies and third parties or civil society now now what is it what are other criteria that we should use to decide who makes these decisions do you think yeah, well, uh, I think it's actually in, in trying to where we start in the GNI is is uh, uh, a, a sort of sense of global human rights principles. Um, and again, it's, it's interesting to see if we do have that common ground. Are, are we looking at a situation in which we are essentially respecting freedom of expression, perhaps not in the US model? So the US model is extreme for, for a very good reason. That Again, if you look at it historically, the U.S. was absolutely determined that government should not tell people how they should think because it was a non-conformist culture. They were escaping the conformity of um, primarily the British government but also other governments telling you how you could worship or uh, think or or practice your your beliefs. So they were determined to, to make sure government didn't tell them what they could think or do, and that left the space actually for private companies and others uh, to, to tell you what you can say in particular spaces. So that's a particular model. In the rest of the world, um, you tend to have a model where governments are able to intervene to an extent, but that's constrained by the fact that they adhere to general human rights principles that say, you know, we must. there must be a compelling reason, there must be a, a demonstrable public interest before we intervene. So I think one of the first questions is, is, you know, what's the structure that is is most going to conform to those broad human rights principles where intervention is limited? And I think that actually steers you in many cases away from government as the first option. I mean, the risk of introducing government or giving excessive powers to government is generally... I think too significant for most people who are in this space to to want it to happen uh, in most countries. Uh, we're moving in that direction. It's really interesting now to see how people shift because people are so uh, hostile based on their experiences to the way that companies are doing this and so distrustful of the companies that they are much more open to government moving into this space. But when they do, and when we look at the detail of that, then I think people are more concerned. And very interestingly, the Canadian government at the moment is considering some legislation to to kind of try and regulate uh, harms on the internet. And the Global Network Initiative themselves are giving feedback to the Canadian government to say, you know, be careful that you're not going too far here. Um, so I think that's that's a, actually a critical, a critical question is, look, if you conform to general human rights principles, even if you're not kind of all the way over to the US First Amendment side of things, um, to what extent are you comfortable inviting governments in, given that governments can be very oppressive uh, if they take uh, powers to regulate speech and, and abuse them? 
So maximizing the the robustness and resilience of human rights principles should be a second criteria. Yeah. We should think about how we can make the how we can distribute decision making in such a way that these principles are safeguarded. And and that's actually where we come back to an argument that I increasingly see poo pooed in the debate. Although I think that there's some real value to it, and that is the argument that that uh, where democratic governments may feel they have the legitimacy to take on the decision-making in a series of cases, they should assume that other governments that are less democratic will use them as a model and say that we will do the same. This contagion effect is, I mean, I think I don't think that it's it's not a working argument anymore because yeah. most people think that, oh, we're, you know, it's it's still going to be different. But I do think that there's some truth to it because if your second principle is we should maximize the robustness and long-term uh, sustainability of the human rights principles, then we should accept that government as a class making decisions will be both democratic and less democratic or authoritarian or dictatorship-like governments, right? Yeah, but I think there's a critical distinction that is really important to recognize that I think government as a set of politicians is incredibly risky. Because as I said before, they they have biases. Uh, They want to get re-elected. They, they will make decisions about platform content that they think favor their political faction and disfavor the opposition. They will. That, like, it's, it's in their DNA, just like it's in the DNA of companies to favor stuff that, you know, will, will uh, increase their growth and reach and, and money. And so uh, uh, politicians, if, if when we talk about government, we mean politicians – Politicians are always going to be a problem, even in supposedly mature democracies. And you just need to look in, in countries like the UK and the US at the moment, where this, you know, the issues of the culture war and the war on woke and all of these phrases come up, where essentially people are are sort of arguing over freedom of expression from the, the the right is generally championing more freedom of expression, saying why are we being cancelled and shut down and. Yeah, uh, the left is is champing at the bit because there's not enough hate speech being removed that they think sustains people on the right, and yeah, off we go. So, politicians, government as politicians, I think very very high risk for introducing all kinds of new problems and biases. But there's another form of government which is government as an independent regulator, and this is certainly the proposal in the United Kingdom, for example, is that uh, uh, Ofcom, the telecoms regulator who are not people who are trying to get re-elected, that they would have the primary power. So if the regulator is truly independent, then that may be okay. But again, even there, what we find is in the UK regulation, there's a proposed regulation, there's a bit where the politicians can give mandates or orders (laughs) to the regulator. That worries me. Uh, Independent regulators can be uh, uh, made dependent. And we've seen that in a number of European countries. And in fact, again, Ofcom, the UK regulator, there's a big sort of row going on at the moment that the government intends to appoint as its chair the person who used to edit the principal right-wing newspaper in the United Kingdom. And so that would call into question their independence. So say, government is, a, is an issue. If it's government as politicians, I think we absolutely need to keep them miles away from, from these decision-making. If there is truly an independent regulator who will stand up and has the power to stand up and do the right thing, even when they've got a government screaming at them, and has a board that is genuinely politically independent, then maybe there's a bit more scope for that body uh, to be involved and engaged in decision making. I, I tend to be more skeptical than you are on this one because I think that you're not allowed objectives when when you sort of see large geopolitical comparisons, which means that that if you go to say that the, you know any kind of class of decisions should be made by governments 
then that's one thing. Any class of decisions should be made by regulators, then you'll have to accept that other countries will say, we are allowing our regulators to do this, whether or not you can attach the adjective independent to them. I think that that, that sort of it, it does have that effect over time. And and so I'm I'm a little bit more I think I think there is great value in thinking through what it would mean if other entities designated as regulators uh, in other kinds of states also made the same kinds of decisions. For however, I mean, I have an enormous amount of respect for most regulators uh, across the world, and I think they're doing a great job. I think Ofcom is, is certainly an independent regulator, but I do think that the class matters yes. when when and when you enter a geopolitical discussion because that's that's how. That's how the less democratic countries will argue, uh, right. I think. And and the and the EU has a certain amount of check and balances that, in the sense that the EU typically will put into its uh, pan-European regulations provisions that require the regulators to be independent. And if a government tried to compromise their independence, then they the the government of that country could be taken to the European Court of Justice and overruled. Although, as we've seen this week in Poland, there's a Polish court that said, "Well, no, Polish law, constitutional law, has supremacy over European Court of Justice." So, I think you're right to be skeptical. Um, there are these measures in place, but where a government is absolutely determined to corrupt its regulator, subvert its regulator to its own wishes then in practice, there's probably very little that, that anyone can do uh, to stop that from happening. And if that regulator has control over internet content, uh, then it's going to start to operate in a partisan manner. I don't see any way you know, that that can be avoided. And so we have robustness and resilience of human rights principles. They suggest that we should at least uh, look uh, with, um, with we should look with scrutiny uh, at government as the place to make decisions, uh, allowing for more decision making for regulators. But what does that principle mean for companies? Companies should companies then also be looked at with the same level of scrutiny? Uh, well, I think that yes, and and that's I think again where. Um, the the global network initiative creates this interesting model where it, you know uh, as part of your commitment you're committing to a set of human rights principles and you're committing to be audited on them and actually if people haven't looked at them it's well worth going and having a looking at a look at the reports that the GNI issues um, as well as some of the the internet platforms a number of telecoms companies actually joined the GNI because they were facing similar challenges. They were operating in countries in you know, Central Asia or uh, Southeast Asia where, where people accused the telecoms companies of, of misbehavior and, and threatening uh, privacy and freedom of expression. And so they joined as well. So you get these really quite, quite good comprehensive reports where uh, all of these companies have carried out an audit and sure critics will say the audit's not rigorous enough or it's not independent enough but there is a process in place and a report is is put out there so again i think those models as a model it's really interesting that that companies should be held to high standards gni is a way of them agreeing uh saying or declaring that they will be held to those high standards there are other international sort of business and human rights organizations doing similar things and and once they've signed up to that they are then audited against those principles. Um, and I think and that material is put in the public domain. I think that actually is one way that you can hold them to those standards. Um, in a way, actually similar to the fact that, you know, the European Court of Justice would would be looking at, or European Court of Human Rights, indeed, if it's that kind of case, would be looking at uh, um, what, what a regulator is doing on behalf of the government or the government does itself. 
And, and it, that is interesting because what we're discussing now is the, at the tail end of decision making, right? Looking at the decisions post facto and saying this was a good decision or this was a bad decision. That's what sort of the audit part of this is. And so one part of the question that we can ask is if you know if you look through the decision making process, which pieces of it should be allocated across government and companies and third parties? Another example of decision making. Uh, delegation to to a third party that's actually more about the decision making itself and less about the audits is the GIFCT, the Global yes. Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism. That was set up to share information between tech companies in order to make sure that they could make the same decisions around the same sets of content. How, how, how do you think that there's a different principle that applies there, or do you yeah. think that it's the same? I think that's, I mean, there's an operational side to it. And we should recognize as well that the Global Network Initiative also had that, that part of its function was uh, to invite member companies to bring difficult issues to, to a, a, in this case, a private forum where they could work with experts and try and make a better decision than yeah. they would make on their own. And again, I'm not sure the extent to which people would say that's been successful, but the, conceptually, the idea of having these fora where you can discuss uh, difficult issues privately i think is also extremely helpful as well as the public audit yeah and gift is very much in that space yeah it's it's you know um, by definition a lot of the questions that are raised around terrorist content on platforms are not necessarily things that will be put fully into the public domain but to have a space where uh, companies can come together and actually in in that case all of the parties are represented because governments are very uh, significantly part of the GCT. Again, they, they they form part of the pressure to set it up, but they'll also be present at the meetings. Although I know that there were, again, conversations around the extent to which constitutionally government should be part of it, um, given given the, the the potential risks of that. But certainly, at, 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 from a sort of functional and operational point of view, it's a space where governments, other experts, and companies can talk through the difficult I- issues and then come up with some common operating principles that they can then all apply uh, and, and collectively try and reduce the malign influence of, of content that might be supportive of terrorism on their platforms. And, and one thing here that sort of argues for the, for the decision to be made by this third party that coordinates across governments and companies is that you do maximize consistency in the decision making this way. And, and, that's, and that has a value on its own, doesn't it? It does for the users. I mean, for the users, it's it's kind of odd. And again, we should be careful that there there there's consistency and consistency in some areas. For example, you know, um, some platforms allow nudity. In fact, some platforms are entirely dedicated to nudity, and some don't allow nudity and pornography. And so, there's lots of sort of taste and decency questions where platforms will be different from each other. But when it comes to you know the really sort of uh, hard end of very very harmful content, that's where I think consistency is helpful to kind of understand that you know you're never going to be able to uh, you can't you can't just kind of move your bad content from one platform to another, which is the risk of something like terrorist content. And and then the flip side of that is that diversity is also a value that we need to balance because so, what you just said is really important, right? The fact that if everybody had the same terms and services, then then you you couldn't have places on the internet that were more open to controversial kinds of content uh, or less open to them. You couldn't have the family safe website 
and then the very not family of safe website dedicated yes. to nudity, as you would say, right? So, so another value when we look at the distribution of the decision making between our parties here it should actually be that we want some diversity. So a large, and the way to do that, of course, is to give it to the companies because the companies yes. will see that a set of decisions and the way that they make those decisions will have a, an impact on their competitive advantage. So I think as long as consumers sort of understand what's going on, diversity is is good. It's actually helpful and it's, it's pro-freedom of expression. It's not we shouldn't be sort of forcing conformity. Um, but there are limits, and and this is actually one of the the toughest areas to deal with that the politicians will have to deal with if they want to regulate in this area. So so I think most of us would say, look, diversity is okay as long as the speech is not actively harmful. And then that leads you to have to make a decision of what is actively harmful, so harmful that it shouldn't be allowed on any platform at any time ever. Um, and again, I think there'll probably be consensus around the hard, hard, hard end of some of the pro-terrorism uh, or the child abuse type content. But when it comes to things like hate speech or misinformation, I think that's a lot more contentious. Uh, and there'll be different views as to whether or not you should allow some platforms to be a bit more hatey and a bit looser with the facts than others, or whether you've got to impose common standards even in these areas. Um, so do you do you lean in favor of diversity, and uh, maybe with an element of a bit of risk as you see it, or do you lean in favor of conformity, uh, which I say from a freedom of expression point of view is certainly factually more limiting. Yeah. And, and at some point, you also have to realize, I suppose, that what you're talking about here are, are websites that may just chose to curate certain kinds of content. The Christian website that just chooses to look at the world from a Christian perspective. There is, there is, for example, uh, a version of the Wikipedia that uh, that doesn't um, mention Darwin. <laughs> so, yeah. so you, you, I mean, the the ability to exclude certain kinds of content, the diversity there, uh, when when that exclusion is based on on other principles uh, than those that actually are common to our society, the human rights principles that you mentioned before, that their diversity does seem to be some kind of value in the interest of diversity of opinion. Now, now let's come to the, the hard question, then, the really hard question. We have our principles. Efficiency, that's why we don't throw everything through the courts. We have the robustness of the human rights principles. We want to allocate decision-making across our three uh, parties in order to, to maximize the long-term sustainability of human rights principles. We have the notion of variance, consistency, and diversity. We need to think about consistency when it comes to the really uh, the content that everyone agrees should be regulated hard, but also diversity when we look at diversity of opinion. But then we have the last question, which is sort of goes back to where we were in the beginning, and that's what about the quality of the decision making? How much should yeah. the quality of the decision making matter when we decide who gets to make the decision of, for example, content moderation? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you said earlier it's. Uh, is interesting that some people sometimes people will will accept a, the same decision if it's made by one party would be acceptable, but if it's made by another party is unacceptable. And so again, the decision over, for example, a politician's uh, speech on a platform, uh, you know, when when uh, even if people agree with the decision, <laughs> they will disagree with the fact that it's being made by the platform rather than by somebody else. And I think this all, essentially, as I go around this, it sort of steers me back to thinking that getting the quality of decisions you need from a body that is civil society uh, dominant or civil society owned may be the right solution. So that the fear is 
you know, that the civil, civil society-led uh, organizations would not be able to make the same uh, quality of decision because they're not necessarily equipped for that. They haven't had the experience. They're not in at the heart of it. And so I think that's why, I think in principle, companies would feel much more comfortable ceding decision-making to civil society organizations. Uh, and governments may be comfortable ceding decisions to civil society organizations. The question is, you know, would they be able to operate at scale and 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 uh, reach the same quality levels? And again, we come back to our friend, uh, the, the external oversight board. That really was uh, or is an attempt, I think, by Facebook to say, look, we would like a civil society organization to do this work. And we are going to uh, make sure they've got the resources and give them uh, what they need in order to make high quality decisions. And that level of support actually then has led to criticism because there are people outside of it saying, well, they're a creature of Facebook. They can't possibly be independent. Why is Facebook spending so much money? But I think the reason they are is because they say they're trying to get to that sweet spot of decisions being made by people who are respected, who perhaps have, uh, you know, let's say everybody is biased in a certain way, but are as unbiased as you can possibly get because they're not party to any of the these institutions. There are people who used to be in government but are no longer part of a government. There are people who worked in different industries uh, who are part of that. People have been in judiciary and regulators. So you're trying to get people who are as independent as possible, and then you're trying to make sure the resources are there and a system is in place for them to make the high quality decisions you want. So I think that's a, and, for me and the that's high quite, quality, such an interesting experiment. It is a hmm. really interesting experiment. I think there's an enormous amount of value in it. And I also think that the way I've sort of conceived of it, and it would be interesting to see since you were such a material force behind it, was that what it allows you to do is is not necessarily to improve the quality of the decisions that were already made, but it allows you to improve the decision making going forward. So you have the input from the oversight board, and really one of the metrics for its success has to be are the decisions made by Facebook over time better because of the oversight board or not? This, was that? Did you think about that when you yeah, when you yeah. were debating and, and this? I will have to say, so I, I, I'll, my role was as a consultee, an active consultee on the creation of it, and I'll <laughs> cede to others the credit for actually, actually building it. Um, and it was an interesting process. And I have to say, at the beginning, I was skeptical. I, I should say that. I was like, you know, I'm not sure. Well, I was skeptical because from a company point of view, I kind of felt you know, you're never going to be able to sort of outsource responsibility for these decisions. It's always going to come back to you. And I think to a certain extent that's true. And and people still are, are sort of saying, well, it's all, this is really part of Facebook. Um, but having said that, uh, I actually think that the way in which it's been set up um, uh, is leading to good decisions. And to your point, that the fact that there are these public recommendations back to the company is inevitably going to act as a, a really important um, force directing the company's future uh, actions. And so, yes, they, they, in theory, they may not implement the changes that are recommended uh, and and they may uh, continue to make poor decisions. But I actually think in practice, because it's public, because the oversight board is well-resourced and can keep coming back to these issues – Facebook would be extremely foolish not to try and make positive changes on the back of it. So this dynamic of a, a public interplay between, you know, there's the Facebook decision and then there's this quite expert, quite well-resourced body looking at that, coming to their own view and then making recommendations in many cases of a kind of long-term systemic change, putting that into the public domain is is about as effective a mechanism as I can conceive uh, you know, if you want the more immediate change, you have government regulators just ordering the company to make changes. But that 
brings these other risks in. So I think it's certainly worth exploring this model. Um, interesting would be how you marry this model with the regulator model. Is yeah. there one where you've got a three-legged stool uh, where you know the company decisions are going uh, to an external oversight board or going to a civil society organization primarily for the, the criticism? And then you also then have a piece of government sort of in there trying to give some authority to this or or acting as some kind of backstop power. And that may be a future evolution of the model. And one way to think about it is you shouldn't allocate the decision-making power as to make the individual decision as good as possible, but you should allocate it in such a way that quality increases over time. Yes. Um, that there's like learning built into the system because if there's learning built into the system and quality increases over time, then at that point, you know that the allocation of decision-making responsibility makes sense. Um, and, you know, the, the inverse of that would be if you're if you're sort of allocating decision-making power in such a way that that it essentially is is random or haphazard or driven by the press cycle or something like that, then then you're then you're shortchanging all of society on, on how to make these decisions. So, so, so we're. Um, it's interesting because that means that the individual decision might not be the focus of our quality discussion as we thought in the beginning, but rather the overall increase in quality in decision making over time. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I, th- I think that's the case, and, and so the legislation is sort of heading in that direction. Because I'm not. Um, again, when you're dealing with individual pieces of content, there was the old phrase: "Hard cases make bad law." <laughs> there are a lot of those. Like sort of individual cases on their own, if you overreact to them, I mean, they can be very exercising people at the time, but if you overreact to an individual case, you then end up sort of creating a precedent and uh, that then is actually unhelpful. And so I think you're right, the measure should be over time. And, and what are those measures? Like how, do you, how do you sort of measure satisfaction over time, I think is the key uh, question. Um, and again, satisfaction in terms of content decisions are, look, if it's your content that's taken down, you're unhappy. Uh, and uh, if you made a complaint and no action was taken, you're unhappy. So again, like, uh, you're almost invariably going to make, back to your binary decision-making, what hinted is you're going to make one party unhappy whichever decision you take. Um, so how do we understand, how do we yeah. sort of weight the relative unhappiness of those parties, I think is a key part of that uh, decision-making process. And then back to our audit question, coming back and saying, look, you know, who, whose unhappiness do we care mo- most about? Well, that will depend on uh, uh, external assessment of things like were the, were the decisions consistent with the uh, right to freedom of expression, right to privacy and so on. But this is where you could poll, for example, on legitimacy, because legitimacy would be the one metric that you want to get back to. So people may disagree with individual court decisions, but uniformly across uh, at least a lot of different nations, courts have very high legitimacy. They're seen as independent arbiters in a, in a good way. And so if, if you sort of if you start measuring yesterday almost and sort of look at the legitimacy of of the decision making around content moderation for example and then you track over time you might have some kind of inclination indication at least to of of where the decision making overall is going because ultimately that is how this is judged right when we distribute the decision making the the way that we know that we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing is if whether or not people think that the decisions made are legitimate isn't that right uh, partly, but again, it's um, who's making that assessment. Here's here's a, a real risk area. I w- uh, maybe I'll sound like like whatever metropolitan elite, but I, I actually think um, so. I think what what we know is that company decision making is generally 
uh, criticised. I mean, people from across the political spectrum, from all different quarters, will criticise company decision making. Uh, I think if you went to uh, out to the public, a lot of the public would say, "No, government should do this." Uh, uh, and mm-hmm. this is my metropolitan elite thing: is uh, they're wrong to think that they can trust their government with this. But I actually think, you, you know, in a lot of countries, again, US perhaps being an honourable exception, but certainly in in uh, many countries of the world, people would say, well, no, it's my government who should get to decide this because I vote for the government. Um, uh, and they might not have the same sort of hesitancy that you and I have had on this call. Um, with the civil society decision-making, I think it could r- reach the level of confidence. It could compete with government. But here's, again, I will um, criticise the critics of the external oversight board or criticise the critics of the GNI and other initiatives that what they're doing is effectively undermining our attempts to create civil society organisations that could take this decision-making away from companies. And I actually really worry about that at the moment, that I think these are good faith efforts to try and create something new. Uh, and yet a lot of people who I think should be supportive of them are too quick to criticise them. And then we're left with this position, which I find really uncomfortable, look, having trashed the company decision-making and then having equally trashed any of these new civil society organizations that are created to do it, you are only left with government uh, being able to make those decisions. Um, and I say that's, a, in a sense, a political viewpoint to decide how comfortable you are. I, I see a bigger role for government and a bigger role for regulation. I think that's inevitable. But the old um, phrase was it, quis custodiet custodies, who's watching the watchers. Mm. And, and I'm only comfortable... <laughs> where I believe that whoever is doing this on behalf of government can can genuinely be challenged, is truly independent, and is not going to get subverted by the political system. And I, I think one, one of the ways, again, that you do that is you have civil society organizations, you know, keeping track of the government pieces. So the, the role for civil society organizations is essential, I think, from a human rights perspective, if all of this is going to work. And and that's such interesting. Uh, it's an interesting conclusion in a sense because what it says is that for for this to succeed, you need you need both companies and the critics of the companies to to move into this yes and the mentality to, to sort of speak with pop psychology. So yes and and build out the institutional option into something that can viably be an alternative to government decision making or corporate uh, decision making on its own. So let's let's sort of boil all of this down. Looking at the way that uh, the social media discussion is going today, looking at the the many um, uh, sort of criticisms out there, what you know what would your advice be in terms of the institutional option? Do you think more people should have their own oversight boards? Do you think there should be one joint oversight board where these decisions can be challenged and audited? Do you think that all of content moderation should be outsourced to an independent third party doing it in real time for all social media platforms? Would that even be possible? What, what's the, what, how do you think, what's the, what's the, where would you like this to go? I, I, I'm, I would like to see, um, I think, more I- institutions being created uh, and that those institutions are very open, transparent, and share with the public their learning good and bad. And we've we've mentioned a couple of things. There's GNI, there's the, the GIFCT that you mentioned. Actually, in, in the UK, we've had for many years an organization called the Internet Watch Foundation that does something similar yeah. around child abuse content. Again, it's not – it's an industry – 
civil society body strongly supported by government and yet not part of government. I think we should be looking at all of these models and seeing how far we can go by strengthening them. And as I, I think that requires us to 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 uh, be less binary <laughs> about it and less, less sort of judgmental. And so, so the Internet Watch Foundation, I think, has done a great job. Uh, um, but from a pure constitutional point of view, uh, people will criticize and go, you know, who the hell are they to tell people to deal with child abuse content? That's a job for government. Like, we no, no. If it's worked, if it works well, you know, how do we, and you worry about accountability, how do you make it more accountable, not how do you, like, get rid of it or undermine yeah. it or, or, you know, reduce it. So I would love to see a lot more of these, and I'd like to, uh, you know, a big effort to say, look, how do we, how do we build that capacity, that muscle of people who are not just campaigning? It's easy to campaign against a company. Uh, it's much harder to do the same work that the company does and do it really well. So how do we move from campaigning to actually building institutions that can do all of this work and try lots of different models? Um, yeah. you know, I think all of the ones you mentioned, like there's potential for that. And then critically, how do we, how do we have hooks in the legislation where these bodies can um, you know, be legitimately doing the work truly independently of government, but within a regulatory framework. Uh, yeah, that, I think as a legal challenge is a fun one that uh, <laughs> certainly the UK, US, uh, EU, uh, Canada and other countries will probably be grappling with over the next few months. Yeah, the EU has a, an interesting hook in the DSA around these codes of conduct that they're yeah. uh, thinking about, which I think is an opportunity. And and largely, I I mean, I I think the reality is that this is an institutional moment um, for yeah. for tech, and the opportunity is great, uh, but it requires the. Uh, critics to think about this as a way forward rather than to think about this as a way to cop out of responsibility. I think that's a high threshold, especially now we're in the midst of, of sort of a really heated debate. So it'll be really interesting to track over time to see how this institutional moment plays out. Uh, but I certainly think that both the GNI, the GIFCT, the Oversight Board, or the Right to Be Forgotten Observatory, were examples that show that there is a positive upside from the institutional engagement and the third-party uh, work that tech companies are doing. And I, I, for one, hope to see a lot more of that. You say that and I say that. There are probably some people out there, not sure they'd even bother to listen to this, who would say, oh, they're all just whitewashing. They're all just the companies. Yes, yes. Trying to course, put on a good yeah, front. But they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong. <This> is <laughs> but they're wrong. <laughs> so yes, I think we've, we've devolved into the into the late hours of the pub discussion. Where they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, um, uh, and we are often wrong, but we're wrong with a gusto that allows you to explore yeah. the option. So on that note... I think we'll conclude this uh, and you can find the podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And we hope to have you with us for our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.